0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that our podcasts come in three separate formats. We have our seminar series where we can listen back to speakers at previous events. We've had Roddy Doyle, Paddy Cosgrave, Tony Fahey, and Pettifore. We have have our 10-minute lesson series where we pick a policy topic and just we we'll just set out the key points in that short space of time and then we have our interview series where we chat to policy experts on a really wide range of topics. But this week it's an in-house job. Social Justice Ireland are members of the Roundtable on Migration in Our Common Home. This is a collective of organisations and individuals who are concerned about the shape of migration policy in Ireland and internationally. We've just released our third policy briefing, Migrations in Our Common Home Forecasting for Change. Our economic and social analyst, Colette Bennett, is a member of the roundtable and took time out earlier on to speak to me just about the roundtable, the work that they do. We've touched on the previous two papers and then we discuss what went into this particular paper, policy recommendations for the future. We hope you enjoy. Thank you very much, Colette. I appreciate that the Migrations in Our Common Home is part of a coalition. So I just want to acknowledge that first and foremost. But you were the only person who wouldn't have been allowed to say no to me if I wanted to discuss the paper. So thank you very much. So we might just maybe begin with discussing the roundtable and who's on it and what types of organizations are involved.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like I, I must say, I'm involved with lots and lots and lots of groups on various different things so you know work in groups or research advisory groups or or whatever and this is one of those groups that's just a real standout it's a real collaborative effort it's full of people who really really know their stuff and and they're really really generous with all of that really good knowledge and it's just it's a it's a group that just wants to see a change um, and not a not out of any kind of change for themselves. It's very much based on there are people who are so far behind in terms of what they need and supports that they get that there are people who can actually that should be able to help and who use their expertise to do that. So it is brilliant. I suppose the members of the, of the group at the moment are Action Aid. Carol Balfe is their CEO and she attends the group. Rory O'Neill from the Irish Refugee Council, David Moriarty from the Jesuit Refugee Service, Joe McCarthy from Nano Nagle Place, John McGeady from the OLA Justice Office, Sheila Curran, Anthony Kelly, he's an SMA, as is Jerry Ford, he's in their Justice Office, uh, myself, our CEO, Sean Healy, our wonderful intern, Shebaile. Professor John Barry from Queen's University, and in fact, it was actually his idea to get the gang together. Doug Cuby from UCC, Dr. Doug Cuby from UCC, and Victoria Aluatobi Issa-Daniel. She's a PhD candidate in Maynooth, and she was formerly she went through the the direct provision system or the international protection system. Sorry. So she, you know, it's just, it's a group of people who are just really interested either through their organization or through their own interest in this area, in looking at at migration from a perspective of of a human rights based approach. And it's interesting that the name of it is called, you know, the Roundtable on Migrations in Our Common Home. And that came from an SMA summer school. So there was a two day event. It was chaired by Social Justice Ireland. And there were a couple of people who were in this group who were speaking at it. And we expanded it out then after that. And the name of that summer school a couple of years ago was Migrations in Our Common Home. And it was there to look at, you know, what does migration mean if we take the world as being our common home? And how do we make sure that everybody is being looked after? Everybody is getting the human rights that they they need and and deserve. And it's a huge undertaking. It's a huge ask to try and think of those big things but certainly that group are just, they're just, I can't say enough nice things about them. They're so good and they're so smart and they're so generous with all that smarts.
0: Especially on record. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm conscious as well, this is the third paper. Would it be at all possible just to have a very brief overview of the first two, with maybe the title and one or two lines about each one? So
1: the first one we did, we, so, the gang got together after that summer school, as I said, and we kind of started early 2021. Is that right? No, early 2022. The summer school was 21. We started talking about it in terms of migration generally, particularly around the global south initially, actually. And then Russia invaded Ukraine and that changed the landscape. It changed the conversation around migration And we were really conscious that that conversation had changed to such a degree at an Irish level. Um, And I'm sure across Europe, certainly, with the introduction of the Temporary Protection Directive. So the first paper was about the difference between the response to Ukrainian migrants compared to the response to other international protection applicants who come here. So the system was totally different. Um, And what really struck me about it was the Temporary Protection Directive had actually come to being 21 years earlier, but hadn't been invoked until Russia invaded Ukraine. That's when it became an issue. So I I thought that in itself was telling us something. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the directive provides for is accommodation. So it it calls on member states to provide accommodation, social welfare supports, education supports, childcare supports, health, including psychosocial mental health supports, and um, translation services and employment supports. So that's unheard of. You know, if you go through the standard international protection system, the direct provision system, certainly. You don't get any of that, you know. You get a roof over your head potentially. You get a stipend, but you don't get the same amount of money as was coming through the Temporary Protection Directive. You get a very low level of a stipend. I think it's like thirty nine ninety or thirty nine eighty a day. Yeah. Um, a week. You know, it or sorry, a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's um, it, it's a, just a very different process. You know, even down to the kind of employment supports and the right to work and. All of those things. And like, don't even get started on the education side of things. Um, So it was remarked upon that this was very different. Um, And we started to look at that in that context. And we were calling on government at the time to use the Ukrainian response, to use the directive as a blueprint for what was happening elsewhere. And um, that this should be the approach that when you consider migrants, you should be considered them as human beings who are fleeing something terrible and who need a wraparound level of supports. They need somewhere to live and they need, you know, they, they need all the other aspects of human life. They need to be able to have their education to make sure their healthcare is supported if they've been fleeing a war or persecution or any, you know, a, a climate based change to their their the natural habitat that they were living in, you know, there is a psychosocial impact to that. There's a psychosocial impact to the the fact that you are moving from one country to another, uh, even in the fact that that's meant to be for a positive change. So the recognition that the Temporary Protection Directive gave to all of those things, we were saying, well, you know, OK, the implementation of it hasn't been perfect. And again, I mean, we published that in May of last year. The implementation of it has gotten a whole lot worse since. That wasn't perfect. And it relied very heavily on the community and voluntary sector, but way better than anybody else was getting. So can we look at expanding that out? And yes, the year before we had seen the, the white paper for the elimination of direct provision, and that was very positive. But again, that's been blown out of the water as well. So let's use this. This this now has kind of a process behind it. And people, roughly speaking, know what they want to do with it or know how to kind of put these systems in place. And so that was kind of really the key recommendation of it. And we, we looked through it because it was a tricky one to do some comms on because within it, we were also looking at, well, this would have been much easier to do if we didn't have domestic crises as well. So if we didn't have, you know, I think at the time it was about 10,500 people accessing emergency homeless accommodation. Uh, We didn't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of households on the the social social housing waiting lists or on HAP, but also in need of social housing. We didn't have, I think again at the time was probably 600,000 people on the waiting list. Like that's just blown out of the water as well. If we had actually adequately addressed all of these things, then this would have been a much easier process to do. So we we called out government on what was making this difficult, while at the same time commending the fact that this was being implemented. Not that it was being implemented on the strength of the government's own policy. We were being made to do it, but at least it was being done. Things have gotten, obviously, much worse. And and you know part of the new paper, which we'll talk about, is again kind of bearing that into consideration. So that was the first one. The second one then was published in November, um, and that was on the res- kind of the response to the closing of COP twenty seven. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't kind of a response to COP twenty seven as a whole. It was more looking at one of the drivers of migration being climate change. What is the impact of that? So, for example, every year, on average, 21.6 million people uh, are forced to migrate due to the impacts of climate change. That's a, a huge number of people. Now, the vast majority of those don't come next nine or near Europe, um, you know, and they're definitely not coming here. They, they're usually displaced either within their own country or in closely neighboring countries. But we were looking at that, and that obviously, I mean, if you're... In a global South country, you are more likely to experience the negative impacts of climate change, notwithstanding the fact that you were less likely to have contributed to it. And the countries around you are also in similar positions. So if you're migrating internally or right next door, you're you're still not going you know, very far in terms of, of um, international protection or development. So we were, again, we were looking at, well, what needs to be done within that context? There needs to be, obviously, greater support in relation to overseas development aid. There needs to be greater support in relation to climate finance. And those two things need to be acknowledged that they are separate. And there needs to be more support for, not a new concept, but it seemed to be new, uh, at COP27, loss and damage. And I suppose the difference between, say, climate finance and loss and damage Climate finance was kind of mitigating, you know, or meant to be to mitigate the damage. It was meant to kind of prevent it almost, whereas loss and damage is is more like reparations. So, and like it's a, somebody described it to me as ODA. That kind of support is going to get you a tent, whereas loss and damage is going to rebuild your home, and that's the difference. So we were calling on on for you know, or I suppose we were adding our support to the calls for loss and damage, a loss and damage fund, and that was declared after COP or during you know, kind of at the end of COP that there would be a loss and damage fund initiated. We are now, this is taking place in May, but I don't think by the time this goes out, we will have a loss and damage fund. You know, the they've they've kind of subscribed to the. The idea of it, concept of it, but there's still no detail in terms of how it will be established, how much is going to be in, um put forward for us, what the contribution of every country is going to be, what those contributions are going to be based on, who gets what then on the other side of things. And like absolutely, admittedly, it's very difficult to quantify that type of thing. But this is not new. This has been happening for a long time. Dangers and disasters have been happening for a long time and have been attributed to climate change for a long time. So, you know, there is an element of work already done in terms of assessing the type of damage. And actually ActionAid did a really good piece a few years ago on how you would assess that kind of damage and how you would support it then from a developmental perspective, as in like an overseas development perspective. Um, So it's been it's been there in the ether. It just needs to be implemented now. So that was number two. And then this is number three. So number three was published in May, kind of middle of May. And it's called forecasting for change. And essentially what it is, again, it's back to the Irish context within the the whole global, global context. And it's looking at how we prepare for population changes. What we, I suppose, what we count Uh, as that old thing of, you know, if you, if you don't count it, does it count? And, we currently don't appropriately count for all migrants. So there's a big big statement in that absence. So what, again, we're calling for is a different way of creating population projection. Um, So it's not just based on your mortality rate and your fertility rate and your economic migrancy. So the kind of things that we would see where we would have, you know, high net net worth individuals, coming into IDA established or Enterprise Ireland established uh, enterprises. It's more about, you know, what can we see when we scope out what our migrant position is going to be and then what the appropriate response to that's going to be. So, again, we've had this thing of, oh, well, you know, you couldn't possibly um, have foreseen what was happening with the Ukraine. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's not the first time Russia has tried this with Ukraine. Finland have a very good process already in place. They've set up you know, things like misinformation and disinformation campaigns. They teach that in schools and secondary school because of the type of impact that governments such as those in power or dictatorships such as those in power in Russia and because of the impact they have on populations, they are all they were already in place years ago in Finland. So, the, you know, it's, it's not completely unforeseen. Same with the impact of climate change. It's not completely unforeseen. There are ways of gauging where things are going to happen. And then there are various different models that can be used as a base to look at, well, if something, if you know, if the butterfly flaps his wings over there, this is how many people we're likely to see. So we're looking at the, the, the kind of big call is to have a system put in place, to d- establish a working group overseen by an international human mm-hmm. rights you know, some would either organization or with expertise in human rights, but underpinned by an increase in support for the CSO to actually be able to gather the statistics that are needed to base the model.
0: I mean, you can see that immediately from the um the IPASS weekly accommodation and arrival statistics. I've just pulled up the May 2023. So these are individuals who are being housed by the government. We have 48 accommodation centres with just under 7,000 people in We have 143 emergency accommodation centres with over 12,000 people in them. We have a national reception centre. We have the City West Transit Hub. And then I just think this is extraordinary to actually have on a government document, temporary tented accommodation. Two centres, 102 individuals are in those centres. There's 195 centres in total with tw- just 20,500 people Over 4,000 of those are children who are in that temporary, um, that liminal state. They've left where they've left. And as you said, there was trauma leaving that. There's trauma. That's the reason for your journey. You've left everything you know. You've left everything that you understand. The things that you take for granted, the food you eat, the language, the, the layout, traffic, drive on the left, drive on the right. All of those things, even trying to cross the road sometimes when you go away can be a bit oh a look at the room. <laughs> you know you don't even realize how, how these little things how how easy it is to feel out of place when, when when you travel so to bring all of that trauma with you and then as you said for us to not be in a position and we and and that is the thing if we'd had an efficient and functioning public or social housing system if we'd had uh, functioning healthcare system. If and I appreciate there was an enormous amount of people coming in 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 one year, but we would have been able to we would have been able to to accommodate that had had there not already been enormous pressures in the system beforehand. You know what I mean? If things were yeah. as they should be you could absorb that. Things
1: on that, yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of things on that piece. Like, if you think of what you use population projections for, what government should use population projections for, it's for projecting the type of services, the type of accommodation, the type of infrastructure that's needed into the future. So if you're not counting, what was that, 20 odd thousand people, then they're going to be left behind somewhere else in some other part of the system. You know, that's, that's them not there. And like so we need, we need to be able to properly account for the things that we need, or they can't possibly be delivered. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd say there is, yeah, last year, 2022, saw a huge increase in migration. Absolutely. It was the second highest year on record, not the first, mm-hmm. the second. There were a hun- over 150,000 migrants um, came to Ireland in 2007. We did not have the issues we had we, this time around. We welcomed the vast majority of them. I'm certain, no no doubt, I'm certain that many of them experienced discrimination. Many of them experienced some of the things that, you know, we're hearing about in the news at the moment and that, you know, there are plenty of organizations dealing with on the ground every day, but it's more about what they could bring to us. They were coming here because we were in a very boomy boom. It was all about construction. The, there was like a very high proportion were coming from kind of new accession states to the EU, neighbouring non-EU states. And they were coming because we needed builders and we needed, you know, tradesmen. And there, you know, there wasn't the, those kind of protests or that kind of hatred. Uh, government was encouraging it. Whereas this time around, it's a very different approach and it's a very different response that's needed. But that said, and again, one of the recommendations in the latest paper from the group was about the fact that not alone do we need to project what we need to give, what we need to be providing. We also need to project what we're getting. So, you know, there's plenty of migrants who have skills. There there are doctors, there are nurses, there are healthcare professionals, there are builders. We need all of those desperately, desperately. And yet we're not providing any sort of skills assessment. We're not providing any sort of uh, recognized prior learning or harmonization um, in terms of qualifications. None of that. In fact, we're not even asking the questions when people come here. So you could have someone languishing in direct provision for years, de-skilling every single day. And by the time they get the right to have a job. You know, where's that skill gone? so we should be encouraging this we should be looking at changing the system absolutely you know using the the recommendation from the white paper for on the elimination of direct provision in terms of a vulnerability assessment that is 100% required but there's also a skills assessment required we also need to be looking at you know what are people bringing with them when they come and i think that would also have kind of a knock on effect of changing the narrative so that it's not you're all spongers, you're all coming in here and just looking for the welfare, this kind of military-aged men nonsense that we're hearing. To actually, do you know what? There's people who are who have really valuable skills that we desperately need that also are experiencing something. They need to be supported, and then they they need to be encouraged to engage where they possibly can.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of we are now at peak employment, we have shortages of... Dublin bus can't get staff, uh, at Dublin airport. So like it, it's extraordinary to see an ad on the side of a bus Come we are hiring. It's extraordinary to go to the airport. As you said, even, even with that boom back in 2008, we never had that. We never had ads in the airport saying we are hiring. Um. So we, we are looking for people to work all across practically every sector, I think. And we have people in this country with skills and we don't seem to be able to match them up and I, I suppose i have a concern about the amount of i think it's over five thousand people still within still being housed within the direct provision system who have leave to remain who have the right to to, to leave i suppose direct provision they can go about their business as, as much as they want but they can't find anywhere to live so they have jobs to go to they work they go to these jobs but there's actually nowhere for them to move out of direct provision centres into the system. So the whole thing is joined up and yet nobody's really joining it up. If we need more and more people, if, if, we, if we are tied to this growth um, mindset, um, then we need more people. Again, we are an ageing demographic. Uh, our fertility rates are dropping. Uh, you can see it across countries like Japan, where they are—they don't actually—they are struggling with what happens next with a, an aging demographic in terms of you know when they talk about pensions, and I am making air quotes when I say time bomb. Um, but if we want, Rawr. if we want to look at things like this, then migration has to be part of the conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean it's—I think it's really interesting that we're encouraging it. On the one hand, so I know, for example, say at a European parliament level, there's a portfolio there that's looking at trying to get care workers from outside the EU um, because we have a crisis and it's a crisis across Europe uh, in the care sector, whether that's elder care or child care. There was an announcement by the Minister for Housing the week before last um, where he was talking about going beyond the EU to look for construction workers. So we're actively doing that on the one hand. And then we have 20 odd thousand people and we're not assessing them for skill whatsoever.
0: One thing I thought was very interesting in this particular, uh, in this policy one, is that we set out the different categories of migrant.
1: Yes. Um, And again, we did that for a reason. So, you know, when you talk about migrant, you kind of lump everybody in the same, Mm -hmm. whereas it was felt that it was it was really important to look at well what's behind that term because a migrant can be someone who came here with literally nothing but trauma um or someone who is entering a six-figure salary job um they're both migrants but they're treated very very differently so we wanted to look and just kind of explain that in an ideal world, you would have the word migrant and it would just be someone who comes to this country but you know, and would be treated the same, but that's not the case. So we were, I suppose we, we enumerated it or listed it out in terms of international protection applicants, those who have a right to remain, those who have reuni- reunification status, asylum seekers, and then kind of the, the catch-all term of of migrancy. Just I supposed to give a flavor of, of what the experience is and why it's there. Um, now again you know one of the recommendations kind of building on that was that there would be an, a kind of a concentrated disinformation and misinformation campaign mm-hmm. um and that media and government would fight back on that rhetoric around you know the military age man and the, the 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 awful if i can invoke the the name the awful trumpism stuff mm-hmm. of you know, they're child abusers and and rapists, and you know, none of that is is evidence-based at all. So, you know, we were and it needs to be combated, and it needs it does not need the two sides to every story nonsense. You know, there's there's peaceful protest and there's incitement to hatred, and that's what that is. So that needs to be combated, but it needs also kind of those positive stories. So we saw, you know, two really successful referendums recently, and they were one on the basis of people's stories. They were one on the basis of changing hearts and minds, of opening up hearts and minds by telling people's lived experiences um, and have other people then having an understanding of what it meant to be in their position And it shouldn't be necessary. You know, you should be able to kind of call on your own basic humanity and not have somebody lay themselves out in front of you. But it was really effective. And there needs to be more of that. Now, I did see um, shortly after and over the weekend as well, there were some more of those kind of stories, some more kind of profiles of migrants who were here. There was one about a doctor. There was another one. And it was I think it was a, a care worker there were more stories about what people have fled and why they fled uh, there was a really interesting piece on radio where that what happened in sandwich street where the the tents were burnt out um and let's come back to that they were asked one of them was interviewed and you know were you afraid and he said i, I was but not as afraid as bef- when i left where i'm coming from now he had what was essentially his home and all of his possessions burned out by a group that were chanting racist, awful hate. And that was the second most frightening thing he experienced. Like that's that's incredible. Like that just tells you everything from you know, where he's coming from and his perspective. And I just think it's we deserve to be able to give more. we can give more. We're constantly talking about this growth narrative of being, you know, a very wealthy country, full employment. That a surplus of sixty five billion in the next couple of years, and yet we are, you know, we're, we're basically channeling people onto the streets to have this type of thing happen. And you know what I found interesting as well in the IPASS figures that that you were quoting there, that isn't counting no. the people who are intense and the people that were told there's no place for you here, and had to, to go into tents like late last year we were seeing that with ukrainian migrants if you didn't have children you weren't going to be accommodated and they're not in the official stats now yeah so, so I, yeah I probably again where that are clear. we counting
0: that's official that's an official site with tents in it that isn't even public facing you know the image we all have of sandwich street yes no you're absolutely right like those figures don't even fully encompass the amount of people that come here And and i think that's the thing like that it's such a, I can't imagine putting a few bits in a rucksack, tucking my children under my arm and leaving here either by foot or in front of a tank and not knowing where I'm going, having to leave all my stuff behind. <laughs> I have so but much I mean, stuff. the potential <laughs> of
1: you or a member of your family dying on the mm-hmm.
0: way
1: and knowing that you're making that decision with that possibility yeah. in mind, yeah. yeah, and it's still better than what you're experiencing. Yes,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. Like it's it's an extraordinary thing. Um, and and I was even looking at uh, it was uh, Norman Foster. He's a very famous English architect. Was looking at the the whole emergency shelter thing because he was looking at like, Turkey and Syria and that as you said, this sort of um, people are just handed tents. And he said, but when we actually look around the world at disasters or climate disasters and people moving into these sort of tented emergency uh, emergency shelters, he said, in some parts of the world, there are families living in these shelters for up to 17 years, which is why, the that loss and damage thing is so important. You know, this is um, this is it, it's it's incredible that we would expect that that's enough. That's OK. that That's OK for you. You know, your house was burned to the ground, your village was raised to the ground and uh, here's a tent and uh, here's a five litre bottle of water and come back tomorrow for another five litre bottle. Like that's that isn't good enough. And I think if you've actually managed to make it here, um, which again, I think would show extraordinary language skills, it would show extraordinary uh, tenacity. um it would show extraordinary problem-solving skills, the ability to to, to figure out... I, I mean, I don't think I could get from here halfway around the world with just the clothes I'm stood up in. I know I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd walk as far as poop, but that would be me finished. Like, well, so but just, you see, the thing is, what would it take?
1: Do you know what yeah, I mean? What yeah, would it take yeah, to get you it, to do yeah, that? Yeah. Like, what would it take to... To get me to do that, to get like to get me to go to the enemy <laughs> garden, like what you know, yeah. it would it would take fear, it would take fear, and not even fear for myself, it would take fear for my kids, it would take that kind of lizard brained. Yeah. it this is in my body, this isn't even a rational thought anymore. This just has to happen for that to happen, um and I think it's, you know, it's 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 it is really interesting that whole concept of. You've got people that we don't even think of that we that are just kind of set aside Um, and you do see it in a certain to a certain degree with the the homelessness stuff. I mean, certainly anything to do with kids will still get something. But when you look at the statistics and you look at how many single homeless people there are, that's not the story. That's not the thing that people are thinking of. That's not going to get the donations to homeless supports. None of that. And I think it's it's multiplied when we think of, of migrants. And it's put me in mind of something that I, I did a a podcast with Keith Adams from the the Jesuit center and he, it was on prisons and he was talking about, you know, the prison population. And I don't even know if it's on the podcast or if it's the conference, the much bigger conversation we had around the podcast, but he was talking about that whole thing of dehumanization. And I think, again, with migrancy, it's really easy to dehumanize a migrant because their experience and potentially their look is so different to ours. But again, you put anybody, you put anybody at those protests into that position, how would they want to be treated? How would they want their their kids, their their mothers, their brothers, their uncles? How would they want their family to be treated? That's the thing. You know, it's not about, oh, they're coming here to take from me. The vast majority of the areas, they're not taking anything from you anyway they're, because you don't have very much. And that's an entirely different conversation. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's about that loss of humanity, that loss of being able or sorry, that ability to other. And I think that's really, really dangerous. And it's something that's in mind for the group for the next kind of thing is around racism and around discrimination and how that is starting to ramp up at an Irish in an Irish context Um, and what we're seeing with that. I mean, I put in to the report um, and I say I put in like it was again, it is a very collaborative effort. It was given to me to put in, Um, but it's. um, it was the the report of uh the, you know the reports on racism that mm-hmm. the the Irish network against racism do um and their their latest one was was just published before mm-hmm. this report was was out so you know it, it gives quite a lot of statistics and it gives a lot of the narrative what i took out of it was from their previous re- report their 2021 report um because because they had fresh information fresh news and i thought long and hard about whether to include it or whether to take it out. And I actually found the line so upsetting that I took it out um, because I thought if this is the only thing we focus on, on this paper, this isn't that paper We're there's another paper coming. Um, But what really struck me was the story in their report from 2021 and of a six year old girl who was dragged up the street by an adolescent boy with a noose around her neck because of her race, that that there were complaints made to the guards, there were, you know, discussions had with the parents. Nothing happened. This family are experiencing incredible abuse on top of that. Mm. But how inhuman do you have to look at something or someone to do that and to think that that is in any way an acceptable thing to do? And that, like, I read that... I, and it's 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 one line in their report, and their report is filled with horror. And I read that probably a couple of months ago now, and it has haunted me since, absolutely haunted me, because, like, how is that ever acceptable? And how does anybody stand outside a camp of tents and think it's acceptable to spew hate and burn them down? How does anybody stand outside a refugee centre or a temporary refugee centre and make fires and chant bile at children who are inside. You know, it is that thing of you either consider everyone's humanity or no one has any humanity. And that's core to that whole forecasting piece. It's taking a human rights first approach. It is looking at what people need to thrive Mm -hmm. and what people can contribute to make the country thrive, to make society thrive. Dare I say it to make the economy thrive? Yeah. Um, but it is that it and, you know, I suppose it's a it's a broadening of the social contract mm-hmm. or at least a, another kind of view of the social contract around that kind of contribution piece as well.
0: I mean, that's the thing, like I I am of an age I was brought up in a very, a very monocultural Ireland in terms of colour of skin, in terms of uh, religion in terms of I suppose political affiliations, you remember I mean, two. We have changed an enormous amount in 25, 30 years, an enormous amount. And just when you're talking about that thing, I suppose, of of, of meeting people and and seeing the humanity in everybody, somebody had been challenged, I think, at one of these things and said, Well, look, you know, the Irish go all over the world. That's we have been economic migrants forever. Um you know, what about that? And, and somebody said, well, you know, we weren't always greeted with open arms either. And I think, well, that's, that's not an excuse either. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So <laughs> I'm going to think, don't punch down, you know, that's... that's like very, Somebody I never
1: met was treated badly, so I'm going to do the same thing. Like, what? It, that doesn't know, make it doesn't logical make, sense. It doesn't
0: make any sense, you know. So, okay, you know, if there's an Irish anti-rhetoric in, in certain parts of, you know, certain countries in the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe up to the 90s, I think things did start to change around that time. Um, that's no excuse. For, for for doesn't give somebody a pass to kind of go, well, my uncle Pat and Wolverhampton got a bit of a hard time or, you know, my auntie Susie and Poughkeepsie got a bit of a hard time back in the 60s. That is not an excuse to... <laughs> to turn around and say a lot of the time it's not
1: even my uncle or my auntie it's i have seen pictures i have heard stories and i'm using that to justify the Mm -hmm. fact that i am i am just a hateful human being and that's what that is like who willingly puts on their coat at night and, and goes out to scream abuse at somebody yeah you know to intimidate people who have come here like out of fear out of absolute necessity who does that like that is it's unacceptable um and i think you know (laughs) when we we issued the very first paper um because we were talking about the fact that this could have had a much better response Mm -hmm. had we dealt with domestic crises, some of it was interpreted as you know oh you're coming out in favor of, of Ireland is full and Ireland for the Irish. And I was like, that couldn't be what we're talking about at all. Just because we understand that some people may have valid points to have concerns about resources does not equate to, we think Ireland is full and we support anti-immigrant hate speech. They are very different things. Um, and I do find it it's like with, I suppose, everything that we deal with at the moment, the, the nuance is gone you know there's no you're either on this side or you're not you know it's not now that's it the nuance on violence and murder and intimidation and hate that is absolutely black and white but you know when we talk about people getting footholds and we talk about what is behind certain things there needs to be a much more level-headed discussion than is currently happening. So, you know, we would have talked to you and I would have talked about it previously as well. The fact that, you know, there were areas in Dublin and areas down down the country and in Kerry, certainly, where they have experienced disadvantage for decades. I mean, definitely a decade and a half, but probably well before that as well. And like with anything, you know, if you're going to, put in or bring in 100 people, whether it's an apartment block that's going to house 100 people or it's 100 migrants. If you're bringing 100 people into an area that has been under-resourced and under-invested for so long and then you say, that's it now, goodbye, people will have legitimate concerns. They will have concerns around, okay, so we, we already don't have enough of the resources we need. We already don't have enough Healthcare, education, public transport, all of those things. So employment opportunities, all of it. Does that, you know, are we getting more of these things to take account for the more people? Or is there now less for everybody else? And I think that's a that's not an invalid concern. If it is government policy to put people into areas, then that government should stand over that decision and say, there's X amount of people coming in these are the additional resources that are being allocated to support these people nothing is being taken away from you because once you've put that to bed then it's less it's less or less easy it's more difficult for those kind of hateful groups to kind of helicopter themselves in and they are helicoptering themselves in to you know local areas and say well they're giving them everything and they're giving them everything because of X, Y and Z. And you know what? They're only going to their military age men and they're only going to be this, that and the other. It's much easier for that to gain momentum if your legitimate fears haven't been addressed. And government has not been doing that. In fact, when there was a protest in Finglas, there was a the minister that that uh, responsible for the whole integration side of things came out with a headline that said there's just no consulting with some people or there's no point in consulting with some people. And while that is a factually correct statement, there will be some people that you cannot talk to. That's not what was being, you know, that's not the concern that that was being raised. It was if you have an apartment block that's being built and there are going to be an, a. De- additional 100 people living in that apartment block, there is a process, there is a planning process. And, you know, there's another podcast on that, but there's a there's a planning process for it that you can raise objections. You can ask about lack of amenities. You can ask about where the additional things are going to come from. You can raise those in an official form. There's nothing for that when you're talking about very literally warehousing very vulnerable human beings. So the communities that they're coming to don't have or don't feel that they have an ear or a voice. And you've unless it's coming from someone who's who has a different agenda altogether and then sure, we're all tired with it. Whereas that all needs to be separated out. If we were properly planning for this, you'd be planning for this is what's happening. This is how we're resourcing what's happening. This is what it means to this community community. Thank you every much, everybody, for your time. Yes, you may probably still get it in the neck because, as I said, under resourced for years anyway. But at least you're not saying or you're not letting other people say, here's people who are going to take your stuff. And by the way, they're criminals and off they pop. It lends itself to this horrible, hateful narrative to get a foothold. And I think it is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous for the individuals concerned in terms of the, the the migrants that are there and are bearing the brunt of it. But societally and politically, it's also very, very dangerous.
0: And there's a profit element as well in this, that the whole argument of the paper is planning. So effective planning would take into consideration how many extra people we are going to have in this country you know we're at the highest population since 1841 as it stands so all of that needs planning for and be that a case of it's you know we saw this sort of rural ireland was aging villages were hollowing out because young people were leaving for, for college and then not coming back with jobs like it it falls into all of that sort of categories of where's your bus stops where's your gps But I suppose the thing that I kind of keep coming back to in my head as well is that if you have an office block in Galway or if you have a hotel in Clare um, that you're going to put 30 or 40 single men of military age in, somebody's making a profit out of that as well. So like there's this massive, massive, massive amounts of money being spent on doing a job really, really, really badly. If we had the infrastructure in, if we were planning for these things, and as you said, so the next time it happens, um, we won't be taken by surprise. This is, as you said, the the global, our common home, we will have people moving around the world for whatever reasons, be it economic migrants, be it um, a change of scene. We don't seem to bat an eyelid when people go off to Australia and Canada and London and New York for experience, to earn better money, to have a better life. We have we, we don't seem to have a problem with that. So when people want to maybe come here and do the same thing, educate their kids, put their kids through third level, they see, they see opportunities in Ireland. And I think that's a real success story, that Ireland is somewhere that you would want to go to and bring your kids for the opportunities that it provides them. And we're not planning. And the amount, as I said, it's just the, the sheer, like those emergency accommodation centres, 143 of them are private enterprises where there's a profit element in there. I, I'm i making a very sweeping statement now, very, very generalised statement. But if they are hotels, if they are bed and breakfasts, you don't have trauma informed staff. Yes, there's a roof over their head. Yes, there may be a meal once or twice a day. But I just think the enormous amounts of money that are being spent and still not providing what people need, I just think is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's millions. Like, it's, yeah. it's spending in the millions for the – it's not even the basics. They're not even providing the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the cheapest way of doing it. Mm. Now, sorry – let me clarify that. It's the cheapest way of doing it in the short term. Mm. And it's that thing that keeps happening. It's that short term thinking is, you know, well, we'll temporarily put them here. Well, What's the plan for longer term putting them where, mm. you know, there is there is that thing of, well, it's going to be somebody else's problem. And I do think that government thinks in five year cycles at best Uh, split governments probably think in two and a half year cycles, but we're not putting that long-term strategy in. We're not doing the forecasting. We're not doing the planning. So instead, we end up paying way over the odds for a very subpar service, uh, which is what this is. And you're 100% right. I mean, if you're staying in a bed and breakfast or a hotel, you're not expecting that the staff would be psychoanalysts or you know, any other sort of healthcare professional because that's not their job. job, Instead, what you have is extremely traumatized people staying in accommodation that has been serviced by some of the lowest paid employees in the country. You know, we have a staffing shortage in the accommodation and services sector for a reason, because it's poorly paid and the the conditions don't tend to be all that great. And again, that is a sweeping statement. I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's plenty of places that are lovely, but realistically you know you've got kids you've got lower paid staff that are there to turn over beds clean rooms make a bit of food and serve it you're not you're not prepared you're not qualified to deal with anything that requires real support and yet that's what we're expecting of people so we're not just not dealing with the trauma of people who come here to seek protection we are creating trauma with people whose job it now seems to be to support trauma survivors and that's not that's not the case and i think again speaking of the tourism sector you know there was a, a really badly at least badly headlined but like the rest of the article wasn't great either um article recently around you know well, there's X amount of jobs coming out of the tourism sector and they're going to lose 20 million because of refugees. And it's like, how are you pitting some of the most vulnerable people in the world against an entire tourism industry? Like that's, it's so hateful. And again, going back to the paper, when we talk about disinformation and we talk about misinformation, and we talk about incitement, that's the stuff we're talking about. Don't do that. You know, there is a, a media working group. It came out of the commission on, on the reform of media and it, is, it was established in March. It's, its terms of reference are five bullet points long. They're all about the kind of the media providers. They don't talk demographics. They don't talk, look at kind of rationale why someone might be susceptible to disinformation. Um, and yet we have national media that are coming out and saying these people, not alone are they taking your jobs and their women and your women. They're taking entire industries out of your community. Like it's it's so damaging and so dangerous.
0: That, I'm going to quickly go back to that planning piece. The methodologies in the paper are quite complicated. Will we let people read through them in their own time or do you fancy having a quick stab at it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did read the papers, Suzanne. Um, yeah so there's a so did I, which is why I know. Which is why I think it's a bit compl- like they are, they, are, they are. quite complicated.
1: Yeah, no, there's a there are a few, and absolutely, they are quite complicated. I mean, they they boil down to quite simple mm. principles, actually. um So. The first one that we looked at was from 2006 and it was the International Organization for Migration and NESC, the National Economic and Social Council. And they had put together a a paper around, I suppose, the the economic and social impact of migration. Um, And it, it basically looked at, you know, where we have. And remember, 2006, right, we had, again, full economy, boomy, 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 you know, deficits in the construction sector, but loads of money flowing around the country. Uh, Loads of fake money, as it turns out, but loads of money anyway. Um, So this was looking at, well, you know, if we have migrant, you know, if we encourage migration, it will ease our labour shortages. Um, It will improve our outputs and it will look at, but it it, it largely looked at the kind of, the, the type of migration profile or the type of population profile we're continuing to look at now. It largely looked at economic migrancy it didn't really explore that whole area of of people fleeing persecution or or fleeing um from disasters so it was more about i suppose it was it, there was a social element to it because it's nesk uh but it was it was more kind of from an economic perspective and what migrants can do for us which is Unfortunately, grossly lacking from any conversation that we're having on migrancy now. So it was, it was prescient for that. Um, but that's really kind of the model that it was looking at was, well, you know, where would we get people to do these things that, that need to be done and to address these issues? Um, then there was another paper that, that we talk about in IFAC, the, the Fiscal Advisory Council, they did one and they used what's called a gravity model. And basically what that is, is you are more likely to see migrants coming from countries where there are already mig- sorry where there where you already have those migrants so say for example we have a high concentration of brazilian migrants mm-hmm. you're more likely to see brazilian migrants coming into this country so it's it's that kind of uh, pull factor into the country that that it would build on um and again you know that that does take into some account of i suppose that the reasons behind migrancy at, and it's more focused on Where we might be seeing migrants coming from, Um, so again, it it doesn't the shocks element of it, and I say shocks in my fake inverted commas thing uh, because they shouldn't be shocking anymore, and they shouldn't have been shocking in twenty nineteen because we can see these events, we've been able to see them. You know, you talk to any climate scientist, and they will tell you they could see these events coming. Um, So, and like again, any kind of any academic on the study of war uh, or any government of countries surrounding you know countries that tend to go to war with people um, they will tell you they see these things coming but again it was a another kind of interesting aspect of the model so there are definitely elements from the IOM NESC paper around you know skills development and bridging gaps. And then there's more elements from the IFAC paper around the kind of pull factors that bring people to a certain country um, and what they might be and where you might be able to, to a certain degree, kind of forecast, okay, well, if something, say back to my Brazilian example off the top of my head, if something happens in Brazil, we're likely to see a spike, that kind of thing. Um, Then at a European level, there is a more complicated model It's currently in development, but it's I suppose that they've got a really good kind of microsite. It's European funded. And then they have a a kind of an academic study behind it. And it looks at four different um, scenarios what's called (laughs) uh, lateralism, so whether you're unilateral or multilateral, and then convergence or divergence on an economic side. What that basically means is how similar you are in terms of your society, uh, your kind of government structures, and your your economic profile of your country. And it looks at, well, are you more likely to see migrants depending on these, these different factors, if you're divergent or convergent, so if you're similar or you're different, in those two. So the kind of four different, I suppose, makeups of that that you can put together. Um, and it looks at well, what might the migration flows be if you get each of these these four yeah. profiles. And they they came to the conclusion that there's there would be, I suppose, more there'd be more migrants coming if we have um if we've got more kind of similarities, more commonalities Mm -hmm. between countries. Um, Again, that is useful in terms of it provides that type of profile because it can be used beyond EU borders to look at kind of the political setup and the economic setup of other countries. Um, There is more scope within it to be able to deal with shocks or to be able to look at shocks, because again, you're looking at kind of a, a broader spectrum of countries, but it isn't factoring in the types of things that we factor in. So it's looking at, you know, it, it talks about the fact that, oh, well, this would be the 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 I suppose the, the best model. And the best model would see higher kind of high income migrants. So your, your your real economic migrants in the the kind of FDI terms of things. Um that so the optimal would be more of those less of the migrants who actually need support. Um, And while I'm sure most governments would agree that that would be your optimal approach, that's not telling you what's likely to happen. Uh, So what we're looking for is a model that's built on, okay, taking into account what the country here needs, taking into account what we already have in terms of migrants and those kind of pull factors, taking into account what we know on a geopolitical level in terms of other countries, how they are set up both in terms of their political leanings, their societal makeup and their economy, and then also looking at the the kind of propensity for shocks and pulling all of that together and saying, right, if we are properly doing population um, forecasting, if we're really projecting into the future what our population is going to look like, We should know with some degree what it what it looks like in terms of numbers, what it looks like in terms of cultural diversity, what it looks like in terms of infrastructure and service need and what we look what it looks like in terms of skills development and contributions. That's what we're looking for. Not a lot
0: then. No, not so much. We'll round it off with the recommendations then within the current systems,
1: and they are multiple, we have huge inequalities. There's inbuilt inequality. Even within the international protection system now, because of the temporary protection directive, we have massive inequality. And there was already a two-tier direct provision system in place, as it was. And with all of those inequalities, lends itself to that whole dehumanization, that whole fear-based thing, all of that if however you're looking at here's all people these are the areas that we have these are the things that we need to do these are the services we need to provide you take out some of that inherent inequality and you you kind of meet people where they need to be and you you get rid of that kind of fear and that competition almost um and you're right i mean you know it has made us like migration and and that Acceptance is the wrong word, but better integration has made us a better country. It's made us a better society. And while we still have crises in healthcare and home care, we'd be so much worse off if we didn't have migration because, you know, we have a, a lot of employees. I mean, actually, there was a really interesting stat on productivity that came out of the CSO last month um and it looked at how many employees there's over i think it's 614,000 staff who are non-national mm. in Ireland you take 614,000 people out of this country we're in serious trouble um but in terms of the the recommendations of the report and we we touched on the, on them really all of them uh while we were chatting but to to summarize it to promptly combat mis- and disinformation and to learn what that means. Mm-hmm. So misinformation, sorry, I'll start with disinformation because it's the easy way around. Disinformation is the willful um, spreading of lies, basically. And misinformation is the, I suppose, the not quite innocent, but un- unwillingly, um, so the, the believing in the conspiracy theory type thing uh, and spreading it because you think you're doing good. It's that type of, to combat that, to to create a communications profile, and a a whole strategy. The government does communications extraordinarily well, and if you've seen any of their ads on Budget 23, you'd believe it, but so they can do it. Mm -hmm. They need to do it for this. They need to bring people's stories to the fore, unfortunately, um, because they're the things that can be transformative, particularly when people have become ingrained in their view, and that's what's happening. People are becoming ingrained in the view that these people are dangerous, you need to combat that, and the only way really to combat that is through the, the kind of hearts and minds, the, the storytelling bit. Um, we need to enforce the existing anti-discrimination laws that are there and, you know, the, pass the, the incitement to hatred bill, that whole hate crime piece. Again, when you read the, the Network Against Racism reports, they're harrowing, they're horrible. Some of the criminal activities are just so evil they're like I, I just can't think of how people think of the things that they're doing and that needs to be addressed and there's a lot within those those INR reports where you know there are people telling the story that they went to the guards and the guards said they couldn't do anything or wouldn't do anything and if that's the case then that needs to be addressed this legislation needs to be enforced if that means that Garda resources are needed fine do that but put in the community supports and the responses as well Uh, So all of that resourcing needs to take place. There needs to be, as I said, a working group on actually getting a methodology that works around forecasting. And we would like to see it being headed by a a human rights organisation or somebody who is an expert within that sector, because it has to be driven. And this leads us to the last one by a, a human rights based approach. And they did it in Scotland across all of their government policies. They have implemented this human rights first based approach. If we could do something similar, start it with migration and build on that. Um, I think that would be really powerful.
0: Can we do our miscongeniality moment now? And world peace.
1: And world peace.
0: Thank you, Gillette. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have any conversations that you'd like us to have, any recommendations, please feel free to email us on secretary at socialjustice.ie with your ideas. Until next time, stay safe.